It's episode 102 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is David Escobedo. I'm doing excellent, actually. I really this is like my fourth time in England, and I love London. and I love England, the culture, the history, the people, the food. I love the food, so I'm doing excellent. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Uh, so you're over here this time because you've been performing with Hoopla. That's correct. Uh, I, I run a page called uh, the the Boost Improv, the Improv Boost, and then also uh, I have this group called International Improv. And international International Improv consisted of. Someone from Sweden, someone from Poland, people from the United States, and people from London locally, and we all performed together. And the cope is, and the concept in this one specific project, was showing that improv is a language that's universal, that's around the globe. The concept of yes and is universal. The concept of support is universal. Um, and so that, that art form can actually bind different countries and cultures together. And I think that was really successful and very interesting. We really only had two solid rehearsals before the show went up. Wow. So we had to bait, we had to really lean on our previous experience in our own country of what improv was. So yeah, that's the project I did at Hoopla. And it was also my first time stepping foot in Hoopla as well. All and right. I hope we get to talk about that later on. <laughs> we can talk about it now if you like. <laughs> what would you, yeah, okay, so in Hoopla, it was my first time ever stepping into Hoopla. Um, and from like the second, it, it was overly booked like there was people standing room only from the second we walked in and there was so much positive energy are you an empathic person what do you mean by empathic like, or do i pick up on moods and atmospheres yes 100 yes, yes. 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 I, I am too and so like it was so all the positive support was so overwhelming i almost started to cry like oh, there's wow. times i'd go like <sighs> and i did like that my shoulders were shrugging and like and it was just an amazing experience um, and there are a lot of and uh, don't ever take that for granted don't yeah. ever take that for granted because especially in LA there's a lot of other schools that tend to be much more competitive yeah. you know so the minute you take on stage it's more of like a gladiatorial arena like I'm gonna show you guys or I have to stand up for myself and show you what I got and this was the audience was on board the tech people was were on board the person taking tickets like, everybody was on board and they just wanted you to have a good show yeah because that's what the community is about so Steve Rose done an amazing job of developing a community as opposed to let's develop, let's have a big machinery where you grind the crank and when you put someone at one end and you grind the crank and at the other end, they're our version of a good improv performer, which you actually see a lot of, not a lot of, but you do see in LA. So that, that experience was really amazing, overwhelming, and it makes me go, I want to go to Hoopla, <laughs> which is really good. I, to me, that's really attractive and appealing when you place the community and above the like, the the end product, hmm. you know what I'm saying? Does it make you know? Because like, so in LA, there's a couple different schools. There's like Second City. There was Iowa West, which is Improv Olympics, and that closed recently. And there was the there are the Groundlings and and all this kind of stuff. And I found that that people move to LA to become an actor for film and television. So it drives a lot of people to LA that really burn out really quickly. There's a there's a high turnover rate in LA, and the economy is based on that high turnover rate. So people who are actors know that they should get the groundlings on their resume because the minute a casting director sees groundlings, they know what that is. But if you get a smaller improv company like Open Space, the director doesn't know who that is. The casting director doesn't know that is. So there's not a lot of credibility that comes with that name. Um, but the education may be way better or the classes may be way, way more affordable. So these larger recognition uh, improv schools know that. So it becomes like a big machinery to make a lot of money. And they'll charge about... Six hundred to seven hundred dollars a class, 
Um, and then like something that'll happen, and I know this happens at Groundlings sometimes, where hypothetically you'll have like a, a tier two class. You'll have six tier two classes, and up until then it's like everyone's on board, everyone's a team, this is amazing. And then they'll only offer one tier three class. Oh. And so six classes at 10, 12 people a class, you have 60 to like 90 people competing for eight slots in the next class. And that next tier three class is only taught every other year. Ooh. So if you don't audition to get in, then you have to wait two years to take the next class. Wow. Um, so what it does is it forces people to stay in one tier and take it take over and over again. And so that machinery is they're paying more money into the company. Right, yeah, yeah. Whereas Hoobla seems to be on the opposite end of that spectrum, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I love. Like, how do you feel like people... Do, do you think there's like a, an internal... Okay, so everyone has their improv journey. But going through Hoopla, is there like a Hoopla journey? Or is there something like that? Yeah, definitely. Well, my Hoopla journey started... I actually did the beginner's course three times. Okay. Not because of anything like you've just described. Just that I was really enjoying it, but I was absolutely terrified of performance. Okay. So, um, But I did it with three different teachers. And I learned, you know, I learned new things. Even if, you did, even if it was exactly the same with each of the three different teachers, I was still learning new things right um and then yeah then you move on to the performance so you have a showcase at the end and then there's long form and then there's you know all these other advanced things so there's there's a route you can follow yeah. but it's not as prescribed as, as what you're describing I'm, so i'm taking classes currently at this company called west side comedy it's in santa monica which is still like in los angeles county um and so it doesn't have the name recognition of second city or ucb all those places exist in los angeles but the teaching I've had there is phenomenal. It seems like a lot of times that these larger organizations too, is there's a curriculum that's handed down. So the UCB curriculum says, if you're a level one teacher, you have to do this in the first class. And on top of that, the added, and I would love to find out if Hoopla deals with this too, is that a lot of schools choose teachers based on how good of an improv performer they are. Uh, and teaching is a totally different yes, skill. You yes, can be an excellent improv performer, but you can be a horrible teacher. Yes. Do, do you find that is in the improv community in London as well? Um, generally, I found that the ability to teach and the ability to perform have um, both been good. Um, I have spoken to one or two people who have admitted that they think they're better teachers than they are performers. And yeah, that's which totally is interesting. Yeah. Um, so West Side Comedy, you have they they set out like one of their goals was we're going to find good teachers. Those are the people that we're going to recruit. So the teaching level at West Side Comedy is is the best that I've ever experienced. Um, and I think partially is because it's not one of those huge names. Um, so there's not people going there just to have it as a buzz, buzzword on their resume. But second of all, that's been their goal. And it's just been amazing. But that's rare. Like, a lot of these bigger companies, uh, it could be political. Like, I'm giving this person a job here because they're this person or they're on this team or whatever. And so I just find that, that that's another kind of hurdle that we have to deal with in, in L.A. every now and then. Yeah. But like I said, the economy is based on people coming in for their acting career and then they leaving very shortly after they're not successful. So the teaching doesn't have to be good as long as they can push them through the system. Yeah, yeah. So that's something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how did you get involved with Hoopla in the first place to do this international improv thing? So that, that is an awesome question. Uh, it's really strange right now. Social media is such a strange thing right now. It is such like the frontier. Like, so it's funny. I, I part of this, I love this because I love different cultures and different histories coming together. Right. So in America, we always talk about like the gold rush when everyone's pushing west, right? Um, and I don't know what the equivalency would be like in England of like just finding the new frontier kind of thing. But that that's what social media is. And I like one of my passions. One thing I know is there has to be a nexus at which improv 
and social media meet. And so that's why I'm exploring like the live streaming. Or I'm going to produce a, something this weekend called a show rehearsal, where it's going to be a rehearsal slash show. And my team, the Wretched Hive Improv, is completely aware that it's both a rehearsal and a show at the same time. And we can so. And so the, the, the hurdle or the challenge I'm experiencing is I'll work with a company and the company says, David, we only want you to, to target people within a 10 mile radius of us because those are the only people that are going to come see our shows. And I understand that logic that if I can't target someone in Colorado because someone in Colorado is not going to come to your show this weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that logic. But, reali- but the reality is what you're missing out on is a global audience. So with uh, this international improv group, that's, we started, we all met on social media. That's how we all met. Wow. And so this is an example of how social media is like, don't think about a 10-mile radius. Think about using the world as your one global improv community or your one global improv stage. I watch a lot of live streaming shows. There's this team in uh, Dubai that I watch their shows every now and then. Um, people are putting their stuff on on uh, live streaming it to Facebook or to Twitter or whatever. And with the education you're getting, I think a lot of people go, well, I don't know if that's going to be good quality improv. But my thought is, there's more education beyond that. There's, what space are they performing in? What's the size of their audience? Are they wearing all the same uniforms? Are they all short form? How do they introduce their... There's, there's so much more than, is that set a good or bad set, that you watch the shows for. Um, so that, that's how we met. And so that, that's my thing, is I find there's a next... Because social media is bent on content creation. Like, it's just, there has to be people out there that get, create content. Uh, I've taken classes at UCLA. Uh, all my all my <clears throat> contacts in the industry say, create content because that's how people are getting discovered. It's not so much audition, grind the audition thing. It's more about um, a produ- if you have amazing content, a producer is going to see that and they're going to create something from it. There was a guy who oh, this is an interesting example. There's a guy that all he does. You've heard of Twitch? It's that mm. website. Okay. The games, the one way they you've they it records people playing games and people watch that. So. Right, and it's like Patreon, right? You like pay for a membership fee. Like I'll pay five bucks a month to come watch or to watch you on the computer. Um, so this guy, all he does is play video games. He booked out the Kodak Theater, which is where they hold the Oscars. Sold out. Wow. Sold out the Kodak Theater. He walks on stage. They plug the projector into his cell phone. And he has a headset and he just played his cell phone. <laughs> Sold out audience, eating it up. Don't we just live in exciting times? But what what makes something land and not like opening packages? The yeah. opening videos, unboxing, those are huge. So but but a lot of that's improv. You're just opening something and go, look at this thing I got in, and that's just improv. So where's that improv component that hits with that social media component? Because if because it's like an improver's dream. Oh, another thing I want to talk about is show times. That's very interesting. So in LA, um, this is this will go back to my my social media thing. I'm sorry, I realized I did not answer how we all got together. Okay, so okay, <laughs> you just carry on. You okay. just carry on. I've got it up here. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, a lot of things is show times. So uh, one of the differences in this international improv troupe that was really that came to, that crystallized that was really interesting was. Um, Goja and Victoria Bang were used to an hour performance time. And and in talking to Steve Rowe, he was saying, yeah, an hour, a half hour sometimes. In Los Angeles, because there's such a high competition or concentration of improvisers, your average show time is 15 minutes. Wow. 22 to 15 to 22 minutes. Sometimes it's 22, sometimes it's 15. 22 is like a, we're good with 22. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you get a full half hour, you're a house team. Wow. That means like, oh, so to, to use like an analogy is that Hoopla would give the Maydays, because um, the Maydays are a house team at Hoopla, right? No. Oh, they're not? Okay, I'm no. sorry. Uh, but if the Hoopla had whatever the Hoopla's house team Well, the Hoopla be. has two new house teams that it's, it's just building up at the moment. So okay. they're just doing um, uh, work in progress shows at the moment, so, but yeah. 
the, the analogy would be whatever their house team is, they get the half hour. But if you're a guest team, like yeah. you're, you're in a team that does the Doctor Who format, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys would get 15 minutes. Right. Because then they can put your your 15 minute slot in, let's say, like Katie's Project 2, and then you guys split a half hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the concept there is they, they get the visibility of you advertising for them, and then both those audiences mix together. And they, they book the block show, and they have four teams as opposed to just one or two, right? So that's how L.A. works. And so that influenced so many other factors. So uh, Gosha and Victoria really wanted to slow down a lot and talk about, you know, relationship and let the scene unfold. And if it goes this really strange way, which we all want to do. So uh, the rest of us are from Los Angeles, San Diego, and we, we all wanted to do. And we're really, and so, but we are so trained that we only have 15 minutes and then on a team of eight people, 50, I might get like seven minutes. Yeah. You know? Or there's some formats like comedy sports where like it's two team. The format is two teams against each other, and so your team might only get, really get eight minutes. So we're used to like get the character out, who, why, when, where, uh, and and then like get to the game because you know get to the game and hit that game as hard as you can. And then tag runs. We're used to huge tag runs. Once we know the game is tag it out, it's mini scene. Tag it out, mini scene, like Family Guy or something like that. Um, Whereas they're more used to like let the scene unfold. And so I was talking to Steve Road Hoopla and he said that when they first started they had two hours sometimes. And I'm like, that blows my mind. Um, so not only did like the time span like affect us or was it a difference culturally, but it also affects the way that we perform. Because I noticed that a lot of us were like uh, Americans were like, Hey, let's go more really high energy and da da and and and, and the people want to slow down and let's find the realism here. Let's find the gen... Because in 45 minutes, we give a 45-minute slot, a the, an audience is going to get tired of just joke, 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 joke. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Another thing that in L.A. is there's a lot of sketch comedy writers. There's a lot of writers for TVs and movies. And depending on the project, if it's comedy, um, typically comedy writers need that like Saturday Night Live, bit, bit, one, you need to get the joke as soon as possible, bit, 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 and you're out. So that's why like our improv tends to be a lot faster, uh, a little wackier at times, whereas it seems like uh, with Goji and Victoria in, in, in London, it seems like it just would slowly get to that wacky. And we always want to slowly, we want to earn the wacky, yeah. but we're eager for the wackiness, right. you know, okay. because we only have 15 minutes to get there. So that was just a really interesting difference, too. Um, so, so to bring us all the way back to Facebook and into, into Improv International, we met online and everything. And so I love finding those differences. Um, and I'm eager to find those differences in the cultures. And there have to be more differences. Um, so another thing happened where um, there was a male in the cast. This was during rehearsal, and I'm not going to mention names because I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed. But there was a male in the cast that pretended to comb long hair, and as the scene developed, he was a female in a restroom, like the female attendant in the restroom. That's how it developed. Later on, the note was given like you didn't have to be a female because not all females comb their hair like that. Not all females have long hair, and so it was a sensitivity comment, right? Um, and their comment was, "So you could have played a gay, gay man." And so in, Amer in America, especially in Los Angeles, we're like, whoa, not all gay men are feminine either. Mm. And so I'd make the point like, well, he could have been a man, but he could have been a heterosexual, effeminate man. So those are all cultural things too. You know, like the sensitivity. And another thing during the show, okay, I'm, I'm popping to, here we go. Come with me to this other section. <laughs> another thing is I noticed during the show, and I knew this was going to happen, but I just wanted to watch it, is there was time that Katie played uh, an another accent, another English accent, right? I couldn't tell you what it was. 
but I could just tell her voice changed and her delivery changed. Um, and she had another accent on. And of course, the audience is loving it. They know why she picked that accent with the character. But we as Americans have no idea, you know? <laughs> and I guess the most American uh, accent that people cling to is the Southern accent, yeah. mainly because it's so fun to do. Yeah. That's what I was talking to, to some of the people like, oh, they love talking like this because <laughs> you stretch out the words and the cadence is all different. But what is like the English version of that? You know, like, and, and, and I don't know, and I don't want to do something and be offensive. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. if I do something because, like, this is the American version of that, and people go, whoa, hey, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> so accents were something I was really curious about. And I still, like, want to explore more. I want to go, why that accent? And then what's our version of the accent? So one thing I did in the show was I did a Spanish accent, a Mexican accent, which is like a stereotype in, Mex uh, in America. Well, I played a man with all like this, and get out of my... Get out of my... This is my alley, man. And so we're talking... And I thought, like, that's a very easily American thing. Like, in America... But, like, I assume that's not very common in England at it's all. It's definitely less common in England. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then we did a scene with a Boston accent. Hey, bro, you doing... Hey, how you doing, right? Like, and it was... That was a horrible version right there. <laughs> it came out more naturally in the scene. And I've seen, like, the Boston accent is less frequent here as well. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't say I've ever, ever seen that, actually. Really? So then what about, like, Scotland and Ireland? Or they did, we did a whole show in France. Uh, the Music Box did a whole thing in France. Like, how are those accents used? And possibly very similarly. Like, you're, you're really leaning on a stereotype or leaning on, like, an expectation when you use that because you want to fulfill the audience expectation of who would use that stereotype and at the same time throw in that twist of why that person... You want to make that a real person yeah. and then throw in that twist of like how does it fit in the scene kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all that stuff, that's why I really wanted to bring these people together. And then the... So originally, it originally started off, I met all these people on Facebook. So my, my, my whole thing, to take you back even further, was like um, a lot of companies want to say, David, I want you to focus on a 10-mile radius. And I'm like, focus on the world and this is why. So originally I talked to everyone, I said, I can book you guys a show in LA um, and I'll help you guys. And we all just do a show and I can find a stage time and blah, blah, blah. And then Katie was like, well, we can do a show in London. And the minute you say London, everybody in America is like, hell yeah, I'm going to London. You know, because people love England. People love London. Um, three of them have never, ever been to London. So they were just going nuts. The first day they landed, I took them on a tour of the River Thames. Um, and it, the, this, the first, it was me, Shane, AJ, and Chantel. And, I just, and the River Thames has like stuff you see in movies. Here's the Tower Bridge. There's, the, there's London Tower. There's Big Ben. Everyone is going nuts, you know. And so within like an hour, they've hit like these childhood dreams, you know. So the minute that Katie said, yeah, London, everyone's like, yes, London. And they all jumped on board. And they're like, okay. So it kind of started from there. That's how it went. But I just love the differences in culture and style. Um, and I would love to explore that even more because there have to be different improv philosophies even, you know, like, because even in America, there's tons of, there's like, I understand, and this is something I want to talk to you about because <laughs> I listened to all your London improv podcasts. And at one point someone said, I can't remember the guest, but they talked about how uh, in England, no one likes game. People are swaying away from game. Um, I don't think that's true. No? Okay. I think, um, I think... Oh, it's really hard to say, to spot broad patterns of what's happening. I think maybe some people are suspicious of game. What? Okay, why is that? Um, I think perhaps because they don't properly understand it. Okay. I'm not sure I properly understand it. Okay. Um, I know that personally I'm very interested in 
the theatrical side of improv rather than necessarily the sketch side of improv. Partly because I'm no good at the sketch side <laughs> of improv. <laughs> I, um, I did uh, an exercise, uh, a workshop with uh, Katie Shute and Jenny Rowe at the Maydays Retreat. And uh, the exercise was we'd have a scenario, we'd uh, improvise a scene, um, we'd improvise it again, maybe swap out a few characters, and we'd make a note of anything funny or notable or anything we wanted to sort of pursue. Mm. Nothing I did was ever written down. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and it wasn't the thought that, oh, I've, I've done some gold here. Uh, <laughs> uh, you haven't recognised my genius. I just thought, yeah, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> it's just... You know, just my mind doesn't work that way. Right. So I, I would like it to work that way. And maybe if it did work that way, I would be more interested in game. But then it depends what you mean by game. And I think game is a very esoteric term as well. And I think uh, improv has evolved. It's okay, now we're going to get into some shh. Right here. Okay. <laughs> so improv has evolved to where the terms don't mean anything anymore. Right, yeah. So when you're on stage and the teacher says, you need to listen more. The, the, the student who's really new in the process thinks auditorily need to listen more. And, and the teacher's so used to throwing out that buzzword that they don't explain what it really means. Because it means observe, absorb. It means look at their body, taking what they're saying, and don't just like wait for your turn. Like there's so much more than you need to listen more. But you hear all these different terms that come out there. I think as improv is getting bigger and bigger, people are leaning on terms that, and they don't really know what they mean. They just know how to repeat them when the situation comes up. Um, and with game, game to me, I get it, but it, it's so esoteric and it's such a difficult thing to explain to someone else. You know it when you see it, but yeah. it's hard to develop someone into getting it. Um, but game is big in LA um, and attached... Okay, is it patterns? Can you define... Is, is, is the use of patterns and recognition of patterns and... Uh, a way into game. Yes, I, I, I would say there's a couple different ways into games. So what, what I would teach people is I'd say, okay, send one person out. So one person on stage and I'd say, do something in this environment that's like, what you could do anything. You could be chopping carrots to diffusing a time bomb. Anything you want to do in the scene. And they do it for a few seconds until you feel like a behavior has set up. That's the pattern. Here's someone in the kitchen chopping carrots. Okay, they're obviously making a soup of some kind. It's hot in here. Oh, they're, they're like, and so they set up this whole, it's only one person on stage. So we set up this pattern. I go, everyone see this pattern. What else is in, still in this pattern without breaking it? Uh, she needs to sharpen the knife. Uh, put the pot up. So, but that's all the pattern. So the second person comes in and they bust up that pattern. And how do they bust up that pattern? They're, they're the lazy roommate that, you know, is eating the carrots. And they're like, hey, I'm going to be a little bit behind on rent today. You know, and so the first pattern of this person making soup has now been interrupted by that second pattern of someone saying, I'm going to be late on the rent. And so that becomes the game at which they intermix, right? Um... There's, and then my thought, and then I usually say, now the third person comes in and helps a problem out, makes a problem worse, solves it, whatever it is. But that's the way I teach people to do game. But there's also other schools of thought and game. That's a very simple way of looking at it. There's other schools of thought and game. It seems like with the absence of Del Close, this is, I, guess I, have to, I have to preface this by saying this is Los Angeles, right? And the absence of Del Close with iOS closing down that people feel there's a vacuum forming. So it seems like a lot of people are trying to push their philosophy forward to be the next big improv school and try to fill in that vacuum of who uh, Del Close and whatever thing. Um, so there's a lot of different philosophies that they're being aggressively pushed. Um, uh, another example of uh, another philosophy of game is that game is 
two people. Oh, um, Paul Valencourt says it's two people, the triangle, the scene, two people, and then where they meet in the center. So whatever this person's point of view is, whatever this person's point of view is, and where they meet in the center, that's kind of the game. Because people say relationship is the game, you know, and there's people that say, you know, screw game, it has nothing to do with game, it's all about the relationship. They're trying to boil everything in the scene down just to what the essence of improv is, and it can be just two people relating to each other. Another interesting thing is I learned in this rehearsals is that some cultures don't have improv comedy. They just have improv. Uh, and in LA, we have improv comedy, we have improv, we have buffoonery, clowning, and then a lot of the cultures have like blending of the two or different names for it, but a lot of the cultures, like you're talking about theatrical improv, and like, and they, they just have improv that's new. Um, which is interesting to me. Like, that's just so different. It's, it's, to me, one thing that's really interesting is America is just this conglomerate of other things that we stole and like, oh, apple pie is German and burgers, whatever. Like, we just stole all the stuff that we liked and we pretend it's ours. But improv <laughs> is like one thing that kind of, that, not improv in general, but like the improv comedy of long form. It's like the one thing that we've created, the export we've created. So it's so weird to finally have something that we've produced ourselves. Yeah. You know, I, I just think it's so strange. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Really? I went a bunch of different places there, so I hope you guys can follow us. Uh, that's great. Um, let's talk about Boost Improv, Improv okay. Boost. What is it called? Okay, it's called uh, the Improv Boost, right. but the, the tag is the at Boost Improv. Now, this comes from in Los Angeles um, that no, nobody getting a lot of stage time. Like, if you get a once a month gig, you're solid. You wow. Know? Yeah, once a month. And I'm talking there 22 minutes once a month. You're solid. Um, if you get in a house team, you might get four times a month, once a week. Um, and then anything longer than a half hour, if you get an hour show, you probably own the space. That, that's the way it kind of works. Um, so I see so many people that just want to do improv. There are so many people, the number of people taking improv classes and the number of people actually performing is, is disproportionate. It's maybe like 100 to 1. Really? And that's because there's no stage time. Now, LA suffers from not having a lot of space in general. If there's an open space, you can make money off of that, even if it's a parking spot. So there's no place to really rehearse unless you pay out the nose. There's no place to perform, blah, blah, blah. So I saw all these students, and they're constantly getting these notes from teachers, get on stage. Uh, when you're in front of an audience, blah, 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 blah. But they just can't get in front of an audience. And I think there is so much to that learning process of being in front of an audience that they're not getting that. So I was looking for, like, how can I get people more stage time without opening a business, without opening, like, a storefront myself? Um, so the Boost Improv, or the Improv Boost, is about... Getting these smaller troops, in L.A. specifically, these smaller troops to get stage time. Because I've produced some events where I'm just, I'm going to put you up online. I, that way I don't have to worry about getting an audience. I don't want to promoting. I don't have to, I just get a space for that one night, throw you online. Awesome. But I know that problem of visibility is worldwide. That just because, and it, I, I feel like, I just said America's, you know, we just exported improv. But I think we're kind of elite, not elitist, but we're kind of like pompous about that because there's improv going on around the world and there's crazy there's like a team that does I think it's called Werewolf and they do like horror improv yeah. uh, there's a team that does lasers light shows like so as much as I'm like as much as America's like yeah we founded improv we're not stretching the boundaries of improv like other countries are which I love seeing this crazy improv Koisha was telling me about this improv shoot she does where it's with a dance team and a musician and the musician does kind of like black background music as everything's going on and the dancers can tag out a person in the scene and they dance the person's emotion. Wow. So person A's talking, person B's been tagged up by this person dancing the emotion, and person A continues the scene as if they're talking to this person's solid emotions. And the dancer still responds physically with their movements, um, but doesn't respond with words. And I'm like, I love experimental stuff like wow, that. Wow, that's amazing. Because that, so, so the improv is like, I want to show that the world is doing improv. 
One of the issues in LA is someone will go see an improv show, they'll watch a team do the Herald, and they'll go, oh, I want to do that. So they take a class. The whole time in the class, they're thinking, I'm learning how to do the Herald with eight people in 22 minutes. And the minute you ask them to do something different, hey, I have this Armando that I want to start. No, just the Herald. Oh, I have this, uh, I want to do this dance improv thing where they, t no, I don't know what that is, so I just want to do the Herald. So people get stuck. It's so weird that artists sometimes are the hardest people to get to think outside the box. They're like, no, I'm a Herald. I'm going to Herald performer. And I want to be on that stage, on that team. It's like, there's so much more out there for yeah. you to explore. So that's why I think they probably said, like, there must be smaller companies. And the only reason, the major reason why I want smaller improv teams and smaller companies is because the big improv companies already have a lot of stage time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They already have the resources. But these smaller teams that are performing like in bars in the basement on an off night, like I want to make sure that you get more visibility. I want to make, I don't care what language you're speaking. If I can just watch you do some stuff. Like that's why I always, for improv groups, whenever I see a live stream going on, I will share it right when I see it. Because like I want more people to see that thing for you. So I want to help these smaller teams because it's more about the art form than it is about filling in the vacuum of Del Close or Iowa West or stuff like that. I, I'm really someone that, that really uh, deviates away from like elitism. And improv, I think, works best when we go, everyone's on a different point in their journey. Yeah. Okay, you're new, you started. I knew I started at some point, so it, I'll, let's do a team together. I'll help you out or whatever it is. Like, I don't necessarily, and so there you get these people that will that'll be like elitist. And something that happened recently in improv companies, I know that they, there was a, a group that started ranking uh, how bad, bad members of the improv company were. Whoa. Which is like, that. that is the antithesis to improv. That's why I love Hoopla. Because yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah. to you, it's about the communities. A minute later, they're like, this is what improv's about. It's not about this machinery, about making money. It's not about like, I'm better than you, all that kind of stuff. It's about all of us working together. So the improv boost is about like, people around the world and maybe we could use improv as the common language to come together. That's why I like that this international improv troupe is like, we don't know each other. Um, luckily, everyone speaks English, but what, uh, what if I did a team where no one spoke the same language? That'd be interesting, I think. You know? But could we do it? We probably could do it by reading each other's emotions. and read this, like, But that's, that's why I wanted the, the boost improv, is I want to find this global platform and just bring smaller companies together that are passionate about it. Yeah, so yeah. So if there are smaller groups out there, what, what advice would you give them to get more visible visibility on social media? On social media in general, um, there's a couple things I'd say. I'd say constantly post. Um, constantly post. Even I, There's this one team in Italy that they'll do a little, they'll take their camera and they'll just like walk around town. We have a show coming up. Uh, this is what we're doing today. Awesome. Put some pictures of your show up. Uh, post a little inspirational, improv inspiration. Constantly be posting. Post if you can once a day, once every other day. Um, and and respond and be part of the of the conversation. So like on Facebook, both on Facebook, Twitter, all of it, all social medias, don't just post and leave. Don't just say my show's coming up this weekend and then you're out of there because you're not talking to anybody. But if you post like a picture from last night's show and someone says, I love that, respond to that. Hey, thanks for coming or thanks for your comment. You want to start a conversation online because Otherwise, your page just becomes a lot of advertising and no one goes to it and becomes busy and tiresome. Um, to specifically get the attention of Improv Boost, if you haven't messaged me, you can message the page. Or what really, really, really helps is on still pictures, uh, so I don't take up any of your copy, your message, is if you tag the Improv Boost in that still picture, I get a notification, you were tagged in this page, and then I just reshare it. That's what I do. Cool. Cool. Um, and, uh, well, how did you get involved in improv how did you discover it what was your origin story so i have to shout out to my first teacher monica ionessa she was my high school teacher and she used improv as a, 
a resource for theater. So like we would do certain improv games to warm up or she would use an improv game to, you know, stay in the moment or listen to the other person. And it was definitely a tool at that time. It wasn't its own standalone performance thing. Um, so I was in high school. This was in 1995. So you guys all can figure out how old I am. I'm 41 <laughs> right now. Um, so in 1995. And so after high school, I, I, I suffer from this. I can do that. I can do that. Like, I'm just really, like, if I see something I want, like, I'm going to do what I can to get that. And I'm not, like, I'm not, uh, I won't, like, elbow someone in the face to get it, but it's like, I just want to do that. So right after high school, I got together six or seven of my friends from high school. I said, I love those improv games. Let's, can we get together and just continue to do them? And in 1995, the only improv that was going on, where I was from, San Diego, was Who's On It Anyways? Hmm. And so I call our teams the orphans because we didn't have any teach. I was the teacher. I didn't know what I was doing and I was the teacher. So I'd have to like, re- I'd, I'd drive down to downtown San Diego and take some classes, take what I liked and bring it back to my troop. Or at this time, the internet was not a big resource. It was that AOL boom, <laughs> you know, that noise. So there wasn't like those improv resources out there right now. Um, and so I definitely had to study, struggle, fail, all that kind of stuff. And luckily, especially when you're in high school, you get a lot of support when you're younger. We had a coffee shop that gave us a show every Saturday night, and because we'd bring our friends and family, you know, and then we'd perform, and uh, and that so that troupe went on for thirteen years, and we performed at the L.A. Comedy Store, the La Jolla Comedy Store. We performed at tons of bars and clubs that don't exist anymore. We performed all up and down California, um, so that's where I started. I my journey had to be not only did I have to learn what worked, but then I had to teach it to someone else why it didn't work. Because I have to come back to my troupe and be like, okay, here's how story works, ba 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 ba, and. Here's why it's entertaining now. Because not only you have to, like, mechanism, you also have to say, well, here's the gimmick behind it, or here's, here's the humor behind it. Uh, so that, that's how I began my journey in 1995. I took a long break. Um, I took a long break. I took about mm, seven years off. One of the reasons being is I was doing improv so much. In college, I, had my, I went to Cal State Long Beach. I went to college with Nick Armstrong and Amy Louise. And you probably know Nick Armstrong. Um, and we, uh, uh, and I, so I started this improv company. And it went on and great. Um, but I also had that improv company. I also had a street performance, this thing called The Squatters. I'd seen Cirque du Soleil. So I had another troupe that I was producing, which was like this. We painted our face. We only spoke gibberish. Wow. Uh, we protested nothing. We made these big signs that said, uh, said p- a typical protesters uh, slogans, but with nothing. So no, nothing for oil. Keep nothing out of schools. Uh, <laughs> you know, so like it was, we walked down the street and protested nothing, like dressed like clowns, speaking gibberish. We broke into a Christmas Day parade, so like a parade was going on, and we just slowly merged in with it, and we were throwing out Christmas presents, and one of us was just like Santa Claus. It was so awesome. So it was like a live performance, and then I was part of two other improv teams. So in college, I was part of these four improv teams, and, and we went on. And the reason I stopped is I felt like I, f- I felt like there was a formula to improv at that time. I felt like if you make this move, I'm going to make that move. If you make this move, I'm going to make that move. And I felt like it didn't have that like spontaneity to it that I really wanted anymore. Um, so I took a long break from it. And part of it, I think, I also just got burnt out. Because mm-hmm. I was producing two improv troops, and I was doing everything from marketing to booking to, to coaching to everything. And I think I just went, I, I need to take a break. And so then I just rediscovered my love with West Side Comedy and yeah, took classes. And so I taken classes at Second City iOS because they're, they're right down the street from me. So like I'll take these classes here because I really enjoy it. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and you're currently part of Wretched Hive? Yes. Tell me about that. So I spoke earlier about how like people will see a Herald team and they're like, well, I'm going to be on a Herald team. So this is a Star Wars improv team and it's, it's not, its format is not, I can't tell you the name of the format. I can't say, well, it's the movie form or it's this form. Um, so trying to sell people on that was extremely difficult. I basically had to lean on, do you like Star Wars? 
Yes. Okay, then I'm going to do the Star Wars improv team. Okay. And the goal was to perform at the Scum and Villainy, which is a Star Wars bar in Los Angeles that's amazing. It looks <laughs> like the canteen from <laughs> yeah. Star Wars. And people dress, like they have a legit C-3PO guy that they have to drill him into a suit. He doesn't just put it on strap. Yeah, it's yeah. like, brr, brr. <laughs> um, They had a working R2, uh, R2-D2 where the people had the remote controls and it was, and it would like move and beep. And, like... I, are you a Star Wars fan? I am, yes. Okay, so there's an Ithorian, which is a hammerhead, and there are these brown creatures that have these huge necks that twist up into these eyes, like the size of footballs. Someone was dressed like one of those life-size, and wow. it must have been about seven feet tall, yeah, yeah, yeah. and had big feet like elephant. Like it, So this bar is amazing. I would hope there's a wolfman as well. There was not! Thank <laughs> oh. you for that! Because he was edited out. Yeah, <laughs> what's going on with that? Anyway. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, but, but so my goal was to perform there, that we're the wretched hive at the Scum and Villainy. In our first show, we performed there. And it went, like, I'd say we had a, a nice size amount of people. But the real, like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing, is we got 5,000 views on our video alone. Like, wow. I was, I, I was, it was incredible. So that's why I went, there's something here on social media. Um, but the Star Wars troupe has been so fun. And it's so amazing to me. And to me, it also says something, that the people that I did attract to the group are extremely skilled improvisers because I think extremely skilled improvisers get you don't have to do the Herald to do improv you don't have to do the monitor improv is much more glo- globulous than that you can do it much more experimental than that so it's initially two or three short form games that are all Star Wars related uh, to give you one of the games to do we do Jabba the Hutt and three or four of us build actually Jabba the Hutt with our body <laughs> I have tennis balls as the eyes uh, we have a pink sock for the tongue, and then I have the little stuffed animal, salacious crumb, and people ask Jabba the Hutt questions. <laughs> people from the audience, like, what, someone's like, how, how are your taxes done? <laughs> Jabba the Hutt. And he always goes, whoa, 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 whoa. The laugh is the best thing the laugh can um, But then all four people that build Jabba the Hutt, they answer one word at a time. Uh, but they're, So they're doing Jabba the Hutt. And then if, if you're going to go see a Star Wars show, and you see Jabba the Hutt, you're like, that's Jabba. <laughs> Love it. You know? um, we have a game called Bothams and there's a line in Star Wars that many Bothams died to bring us this information and it deals with trying to get information from one Botham to another in an amount of time before uh, each Botham dies. Right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, so we have a lot of short form Star Wars games and the goal was there because our goal was the Scum and Villainy bar that we're at a bar so we have like to get people's attentions really quick. So the short form games are really visual, really fast, we got to get people who are drinking and there for other reasons get their attention and then, then we move, those are all become inspiration or um, I guess an opening for a long form set. I mean, much like the Herald. Except that <laughs> <laughs> the Herald has AI now. <laughs> so that's another thing, actually, that, that I was kind of excited about is that, like, uh, people always say, you know, people in Britain they have really dry wit, and Americans don't get that. And I thought, like, well, Americans are very sarcastic. Like, we'll say so. And so I was really curious, and I, this was one of the first things I talked about in my group. Like, does everyone get American sarcasm? Because I don't want to, like, say something to have them go, that guy is a jerk. Like, no, 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 totally kidding. I really like what you do, you know. So, but, but that's where, like, comedy is different in every culture. And so, how does people from all these different cultures come together and share that stage? So yeah, love it. I love it. I love stuff like that. So I interrupted you because you were going to say, so you have the short form games, it's a bit like an opening and then you do... A long form set. Uh, we originally build it as um, a, a trade. So we'd say what you'd see, what you just saw are not little fun games. They're actually little vignettes for the upcoming Star Wars movie in 2020. Um, so here we go. We're going to watch and then we do like an opening. Uh, we, so we originally said it was a trailer, but after getting some awesome coaching with Paul Valancourt, if you guys ever get the chance, he's amazing. He has Revolution Theater going on right now. Oh, 
Okay, Revolution Theater's only been around for like a month. I got so much stuff I want to talk about. So it's only been around for a month. They're really incredible. Um, but we were very fortunate. We got him as a coach, and he said, you know, if you're gonna say trailer, you gotta deliver a trailer. Yeah. And trailers have a certain style where it's like really quick scenes that may not really relate to each other, and they always have one or two scenes that are just grandiose, like a huge explosion, or like just an army coming over a hill or whatever. So you gotta deliver that format. So we tried it a couple of times, and people on the team were like, but we like. Oh, here's something else. <laughs> something else. <laughs> but my team on my team, like, we really like the story. We really like being able to tell a story, and you don't focus on story in a trailer. So we're moving now into saying, well, you've inspired us to write like a Netflix pitch, and we're going to show you the Netflix live first uh, episode. So we do tell a story, because we, like uh, we like to having a bad guy. We like having a good guy. We like having them fight with lightsabers or using the force in really crazy ways. Um, so that's another thing, is that's, that's probably a trend in America, and I don't know if it's a trend. This, I want to talk to you about this. Let's put this podcast aside. <laughs> I want to talk to you aside. In America, I noticed that narrative is kind of a bad word. That we try to stay away from narratives. That's too. That's too plotty. That you hear that all the time in in, in classes. That's too plotty. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's also that opinion here. Really. Um, but I love narrative. I I do too. And I don't find it that difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't. Um, it sounds really horrible, but I don't really understand why other people find it difficult. But that m- might be because I start with relationships. Sure. And I start with relationships, and then the plot evolves from that. Whereas I'm not trying to think of plot first, because right. if I try and do that, I can't do it. But I'm building relationships first, and then story inevitably evolves from that. I, I completely agree with you, because I think no matter what story you tell, it's always better when you care about the characters. So if you have a relationship and show those characters are like endearing, then then the audience cares about what happens to the story. Yeah. But to me, I just don't... I, to, so one thing that makes sense to me is not to play improv for other improvisers but to play improv for a general audience and I, I worked with someone who was trying to develop their own format and their format was so complex and like here's the the it and it everything kind of melts into one another and I'm like the only person that's going to get that is another improviser okay. and they're going to go that's really great that's <laughs> but someone that just walked off the street hey let's walk in here they're going to watch and go I have no idea what I'm looking at so I think the essence of improv is telling a story. It doesn't matter how you get there. It can be all character. It can be game or whatever. But someone walking off the street just wants to hear a good story. Because yeah. there's so many times I'll invite my family and friends to come see a show and they'll be like, I don't get why this character did that. And I'll be like, it's a montage. It's thematic or whatever. And I'm like, but sometimes like if my parents would come to see a show, they do just want to see like, here's the good guy, bad guy, and here's the moral story or whatever it is. Yeah. So... I don't think it's all about narrative, and I don't think it's all about plot, but I don't think it's a bad word, you know? And in America, it's like, oh, that's too plotty. And I think sometimes they use it to be like, to, to hone your instincts as opposed to like, be more cerebral. Like, if you're plotty, you're a little more cerebral, so I get that note. Mm. But I just don't think plotty is a bad word. I just think... Well, I think, I don't know if we need to redefine it as story rather than plots, because people, when they're in the audience, are naturally... They're forming stories. Even if you don't related scenes, they're forming a some sort of story, and they will find connections that you didn't even know were there. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. So I, I, I mean, those trends. Like when I, like I thought that people in England were very against game, and people in America are, love game right now. And then for us to be like, oh, we're anti-plot. And you're like, no, plot's just fine. It's like, so there have to be trends in other cultures, and as I mean, and just as people evolve, there's going to be new trends that pop up and everything. So. 
Yeah, that's another thing I want to talk about. You asked me a question. I don't know if I answered it. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so just going back to the uh, the, the uh, Star Wars uh, narrative. Uh-huh. So um, you're taking inspiration from the short form games that you did. Correct. Uh, are you costumes? Yes. Wow. We have, we have costumes. I dress like a Jedi. We have. Uh, we have, I don't know if, if I'm going to throw out some terms that everyone's going to know, but like Tatooine and Jakku, which tend to be desert planets. Uh, we have costumes for there. I, I invite the, if people want to come up with their own costumes, it's totally fine. I just want it to look generic. Right. So I don't want someone to dress like a Sith Lord, and in the scene they're playing like a, a kind grandma. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, you come with any costume you want, as long as it doesn't distract from what character you may potentially play. Yes. So we have someone play a little bit more of an engineering kind of rogue kind of guy, or dress that way, you know. Um, and so people, and then one guy looks more like a junk trader kind of outfit and everything like that but the hope is is to be more immersive in in LA like I said there's there's so many improv teams that the Herald improv team there must be and everyone comes up with an inside joke for a name it's like we're the we're the yuckle fucks like and I use that term because I took a class with Landon in Westside Comedy and he used that term my whole class laughed it's like I want that to be your team name now but, but that that name means nothing like that name doesn't tell give the audience uh, an uh an ex- expectation it's an inside joke it doesn't so the whole thing in LA and I think just in general is how do you make your team rise above the noise yeah so if I can have us have a set theme have costumes oh we're Star Wars improv now we're rising above like these these names that you probably forget all the names of these generic teams and and they all are kind of sound and look the same that you have to rise above that so yeah we have costumes and we have a special little intro we have a couple gimmicks like you know the Star Wars theme song we have kazoos that we call <laughs> Bith air horns. And the Bith, I'm so nerdy now. Right now. <laughs> the, and, this is entirely the correct place to be. Nerdy. Okay, awesome, awesome. And the Bith are in Star Wars. They're the bald-headed guys, the black, and they play. Those are Bith. So we call them Bith air horns, and I'll pass them out to the audience. And so, so by the time you've seen those short-form games, and I go and we do our opening Star Wars. And we do, the whole audience is like playing the Star Wars theme song with us. Um, and just this very simple concept of using a kazoo is so different. Yeah. That no other team has ever done kazoos before. And I'm thinking, what is a little like, what, what are other smaller elements that you can use that, that would really invade the, not invade, but be like immersive or draw the, like maybe bubbles. How would you use bubbles in one scene? Or like something that's like, that's, that's not uh, obtrusive or like alienating, but something that just makes you rise above the noise and... I think you have to look for those things in the improv team. So, um, when you start this narrative, Star Wars narrative, how do you establish the first scene? Do you have a set? We're going to see the protagonist in the first scene, the antagonist in the second scene. How structured is it? That's a good question. Um, we try to keep it as loose as possible. Like, as I said, we have some really experienced improvisers, and they're really good. So, I don't, I think. So I have, I, like I said, I took a big break from improv. And a lot of my, 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 my original journey in improv was me. I had to go and learn this. I had to do the schooling. And then I teach, a, and I was producing two or three troops. I had to teach these other people how to do that. So I really didn't have a mentor. My first team was called the Improv because we didn't have any mentors. I mean, the, the Orphans because we didn't have any mentors. My return to West Side Comedy, and this could be why I love the, the class so much, is I have this teacher, Jay Suko. I don't know if you're familiar with Jay Suko. I know the name. Yeah, you do? Yeah. Okay. Jay Suko has this company called Today Improv. And Jay Suko is so simple in his thought process, so simple in his teaching, and it's it's almost like Yoda. Oh my God, I'm totally nerdy now. <laughs> I wish Doctor Who. I gotta think of another culture besides Star Wars. Um, but like his, so uh, my my wife and I decided to take the classes together. My wife has no improv experience, and I've done it for since uh, for so many years. So we take the class together, and I love. And I, 
I don't know why. I don't know why I don't see more teachers taking more improv classes. Like if you're taking, if you're taking, if you're teaching at this school, why not take classes over at this school oh, to learn what yeah. jargon's working, what exercises are working? Definitely, yeah. And yeah. but I never, I've never taken a class and seen another teacher in my class. Why not? So I love. So I, we started at the first level, you know, and I know the basics. Listen and just you know follow your instincts. Kind of, yes, and but we started at the first level. My wife's never improv, and I started the first level because it's like I want to know what the school teaches from the ground up. Mm-hmm. You know, when when I'm building a house. I don't want to start building at the windows. You know, I want to see what the foundation of the school teaches from the ground up and build from there. And then I could always use, there's certain skills that you could always use to work on, right? Yeah. Um, and he inspired both my wife and me in the same class, which to me is incredible. Mm-hmm. So there's certain things that he would say, like, just say, just say yes to your partner, which we all hear yes and. But the way that he, like I said, it's so simple, but the way that he would convey it is there's times I'd realize I am not yes anding you. I am pulling in my own idea, or I'm only guessing part of what you said. So here's an example. Uh, I was on this team likable that was really great, and there was this woman, Lindale, and AJ in the scene. And AJ's like, I'm a gargoyle. I want to I wanna eat people in Lindale. And this is the choice she made. She said, we're good gargoyles. We don't eat people. <laughs> and I said, say yes to everything. We are good gargoyles. We eat people. And then that's that show, the whole show, that was like the fulcrum of the entire show. The whole show went in a totally different direction. And it's it's you don't realize that you're not saying yes to everything. It's another thing he says is he says, Don't bicker, don't argue, love each other. And part of his philosophy is that your everyday life, everyone fights. You know, you can get in a fight with someone on the, on the tra- we call it the subway or whatever, the tube, whatever. Yeah. Um, you, people see that, or in their everyday relationships with their roommates, people fight all the time that when they want to go and relax, they don't want to see another fight happen over nothing, you know. So just love each other, and you don't have to pee in the pod, you can, but don't like automatically think that adding conflict is the drama. And that simple thing of as soon as you step on stage, look at your partner and, and love them. Yeah. And, and as you work with them, you realize you can still argue with your partner, but you still want to love that character yeah. because if you don't care, you're apathetic. If you hate that person, you don't want to solve the problem. And then there's no scene, really. There's no relationship. And you're making that other person do all the work. And so he has these very simple, like, and it's blow. I'm sorry. I forgot what your question was. <laughs> it blows my mind. He has, and I would take any class I can with him because it will be like something like, do, one of the things he says, do that more. Yeah, Which yeah, is so yeah. simple. Like, do that more. Yeah. So if you're doing something and it gets like a little bit of laughs, like obviously that was success right there. Do that more. And it's this simple, like maybe you're just scratching your ear in a funny way. It's like, <laughs> he's like, don't overthink this. And it's just, oh, guys. <laughs> it is so good. It's so good. So, yeah. Fantastic. What would you say, uh, what could somebody do if they stepped on stage with you? What could they do to delight you? Oh, so, oh, okay. So in in the show we did at Hoopla, I okay I've always really really respected Kate but after the show I went she is probably one of the best improvisers I've ever 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 seen in the world ever seen in the world. So we we're doing the show and there's all you know, there's like eight of us and the scene right before was this really high energy absurdist uh, love show between the hosts being like love hosts like Maury Povich and Jerry Springer. And then their guests were these extremely awkward people that were talking about why they were in love and what they were in love with. And so then they brought in these these roses that were talking roses. So it's a big cast, really absurd, white energy. And and then I edited the scene and I came on and I just looked at Katie and she read me, okay, come on stage with me. And I knew what I was going to do. Like I, I had this thought in my head, it's like, I'm going to go back to this previous scene back here. But always as an improviser, it's like, 
I know what I'm doing, but if you go a different direction, I'm with you. I'll go the different yeah. direction. I'm totally fine with that. Um, but my thought is, we just had this really wild, absurd scene. I'd love to hear this. I'd love to have this extremely intense, silent scene. So she immediately sat down, and I was like, and this is something I do. Like, I was hemming and hawing. Like, I'm... And I was kind of quiet. I don't want to do a lot of quiet on a podcast because you'll get it. But like, I was quiet for a long time and I was trying to lead into her and I was trying to like re- restructure myself as a character. And, and then I was going to start something and I kind of, and then I walked away and I fixed myself a drink and I fixed her a drink. And this whole time she's on stage. I mean, she's not saying anything. She is not trying to fill the silence with, Grandma, what are you? Or trying to label like, well, at this hostel. I, no, she was there. She was listening. She was attentive. And she was confident. Like, you did, she was not anxious at all. She wasn't like, what's this guy trying to do? I'm yeah. trying to read this guy. I'm trying to read. She was just sitting there. And she knew that, like, that I'm trying to create this tension because of what I was doing. So she didn't, she didn't try to make the situation better. Yeah. She didn't try to, like, alleviate it with noise or talking. She just kind of, like, sat there and gave me this intense look, which bounced me off emotionally, which... It just, that made me go, first of all, we've, we've never performed before, but you trusted me that much to yeah. do that. And then second of all, and by doing that, she became a leader because it's like, you're cool, I'm cool. This scene's going to be totally fine. Yeah. And it reflected off that uh, earlier, the very first scene, uh, one of the guys came out, Shane, and he was a flip-flop on the bottom of the ocean. And he's like, righty, righty. And she immediately stepped on stage. She's like, lefty. And it was kind of this like open, absurdist space of like, righty, lefty. And after the show, Shane's like, I, I knew it was kind of weird what we were doing. We were being flip-flops, <laughs> yelling for each other in the bottom of the ocean. But she was so confident yeah. and she was so comfortable, I had no anxiety about it. And and it goes to show that she trusts her partner. And it's easy to say that, but it, once again, it's one of those jargons that we throw out. Like, trust your partner. What does that really mean? It's okay. The scene's going to happen. The scene that's never happened before, it's not wrong the minute you start it. Like, you could start any scene in the world. It's your scene. She just has that confidence, and she becomes a leader on the stage. Like, so, to answer your question, what can someone do is, I think, and I get, especially in L.A., I get this. The minute people start scenes, they open their mouth, and they try to validate, justify everything. And I can still roll with that. But I think in L.A., it happens so much because you have such a short time span to perform with. That they're like, uh, Governor, we have you, your uh, pants or dry cleaning is done. Uh, it's like, okay, I get you're trying to label who I am, what a relationship is, what the issue is. You've labeled everything at the top of the scene. But I love people that can just... I get, really, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is instead of trying to invent things, like Governor, it's, it's like, we're just going to discover. I'm going to look at you. What vibe am I getting off of you? Then I'm going to emotionally react that way. You're going to read me. And this one little like spark compounds like a fractal image. And now... You know, three minutes later, we're, we're gargoyles that don't that are eating people because it's a good thing to do as a gargoyle. Like, and we but we started at just looking at each other. I in this class, okay, so this class, this woman Betsy, who is an amazing improviser. The whole thing is, I'm sure you do exercises like this. So do do the scene in silence, and yeah. then when I snap my fingers, then you can talk. About yeah, it. yeah. So all she did was she held her hand and kind of opened it and closed it and kind of looked away. And I read that as there's some reason why you're trying to break that bond. So I mean, <laughs> I started doing that, you know, people cry and they, <laughs> and I mean, I started doing that and I slowly walked over to her and she grabbed my hand and we did this whole scene about being at a funeral and I was, <laughs> and all that came from was she just kind of did the small little gesture, I read that and, and we looked, we both knew, we did the space work, we knew where the casket was and then she like looked in the casket and then I could, even though I'm doing my thing, <laughs> I could still, I was still listening, I was watching out of the corner of my eye and I could see her look in the casket and then I looked in the casket and then I stopped and the whole scene was, half the body is missing 
but we don't know it. And so we're trying to close it and hide it. No words this whole time. Wow. And it's all just from like, I notice you do this, I'm going to do this too. I notice you this, I'm going to do this too. Like, so none of it was like invented. It wasn't like, I got this bit and I got this shtick and this is a funny word to say. It was just like, I'm reading you, you're reading me, I'm reading you, you're reading me. And he never snapped his fingers because everyone was laughing so hard that we tried to move the casket out and he goes, scene, that was awesome. Yeah. He didn't need any words. The whole thing yeah, was in yeah, silence. Yeah, yeah. So I think not feeling the need to over-explain stuff. Um, I think a lot of times, I think it's a good habit to have who, what, where, and why, and all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of times it's because you feel anxious that you don't have anything yet. And you can just have that very intense emotion. And you can. A, a word can be the first thing I'm like, I don't care about that. But I just don't feel like it does, that anxiety, that anxiety I don't think does. Because I think the audience reads that anxiety a lot yeah. too. So I really like that confidence. Yeah, no, it's lovely when um, you are confident in those silences. Um, and, you know, words are great, but they rarely solve anything when yeah. you're in a scene. Um, so you know, adding more words to a scene rarely solves it. Whereas if you can just be really aware of your partner and react to them physically, and yeah. And I think a lot of times that makes the audience lean in. Yeah. It's because like they're they're seeing and they're used to like yuck 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 that all this noise that we're being crazy. That when two people are like silent on stage but intense, yes. they're like, what is this about? And, they lean in, <laughs> and they're waiting to find out. And don't tell them right away. Let them lean for a little while. And then the minute you like, oh, now we're doing this thing, right? Like this funeral and the path, the body's missing. The audience goes, oh my God, and they just bust, you know? Uh, so I, I just love those. So that's something I love. It's just that, that confidence and trusting on stage. So before, because I know you're going to ask me the next question. I know what the next question because I listen to all your podcasts. Um, do you notice any differences like in the English improv and the other improv? Like what, what do you think defines like the English improv? Oh, um, I think because... The English improv scene is still relatively new and growing very fast. Very fast. I think there's more variety in the things that people are trying. Which is great. And it's almost like sort of the indie record labels. Yeah? Yes. So, oh, yes. I, that's a great analogy. Yeah. So, you know, we're experimenting. We're trying different things. And I hope we don't end up in with kind of major labels which are very successful and very popular but isn't quite as inventive um, i completely agree with that do you think that's inevitable do you think it's inevitable have like one or two huge companies that are the... i don't know it, it depends whether i like to think not okay. i like to think because of the tradition of theater in the uk i think we're gonna I like to think we're going to take the influences of all the other places in the country, in the world, and I like to think we're going to continually invent. I think also geographically, love it. Geographically, we're in a great place um, because you know we can learn from America, but we can also learn from Europe, and we can learn yes. from all the other places. And it's my hope that I hope that there's never a generic UK style. I hope there's always. A lot of variety and a lot of people experimenting lots of different things. That's my hope. I, I, I completely agree with you, and I think it puts England in a very wonderful spot. Like you said, like so there's this short form, long form improv that came from America, but like Italy has a huge improv scene right now, and they had Camille Dell'Arte years before Viola Spall and everything. And so it's more of like a clowning before, but that's still improv to a large degree. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. matching, they go out and they perform. That that's and so if England right in the middle, how do you melt those two little elements together to get a, this new thing? I love your analogy of an indie label. Yeah. I totally love that. So another thing about my Star Wars improv troupe, we're the only Star Wars improv troupe in the world as far as I know. That's really interesting. 
Um, Harry Potter. All over the place. All over the place. Uh, Sherlock Holmes. There's at least two or three groups okay. in the UK. Um, even Doctor Who. Doctor Who, yeah. You know, there's one the, in LA too. Yeah, they're, 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 we're not Doctor Tuprov, Bryn uh, and We know that we're not the only people doing Doctor Who, but we didn't do it because we were the only people that we're going to be doing it we did it because we both loved Doctor Who right and we were just enth- enthused about it and just enjoyed playing in that that universe but it's interesting you're the only Star Wars I know in America we're the only Star Wars yeah and then I've done Google searches and I yeah. can't find anything so maybe there's just a smaller troop out there that hasn't done that visibility for yeah. a Google hit or something but I think that speaks to like what you're talking about the indie label that people in LA all want to do the Herald the next Herald team and people in England are like, let's try Doctor Who, let's yeah. try musical, let's try this, try that. And LA does have variety, but it just doesn't have the variety it should for the amount of artists that have. Mm. You know, people should be trying crazy improv stuff. I mean, I wonder if people in London and the UK, if they're doing improv as the end product, they're not doing it as a way into being an actor or into sketch or something like that. Okay, I completely agree with that. Because a lot of, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people in LA are doing improv to put on their resume yeah. to go audition for commercials. Yeah. Um, in the last four or five years, now you're getting a lot more people that are like, I'm here to do improv. But I think you're still getting the, the like, I'm here to do improv to get paid to do improv, as right. opposed to like, I'm doing improv to do improv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, more decisions that are happening in America is people will choose what college they're going to go to based on the improv community going on. So like, well, I'm going to go to Northwestern because it's near Second City and da-da-da. Or I'm going to go to this college. I mean, and it doesn't have to be a big improv community. Be like, I'm going to this college because they have these improv teams going on around there. So it's becoming like a very decisive, its own like world. So it's very interesting. Cool. Why do you stay in improv? Can I ask you questions? Are we gonna you can it? ask me questions. Okay. Why, why, why do you like... Oh, but you need to go too, don't you? I do, but we've got a few more minutes. Okay, okay. A few more minutes. You can ask me some questions. Go and ask me some questions. Uh, what, what, do you, uh, what draws you to improv? So, it's the ability to create something in the moment with somebody else. Okay. And that universe that we create... For me, I'm very interested. It's it's always about working with other another person or other people, and it's creating that shared universe and then getting to play in that universe. Now, what do you think about one man improv shows? Because they exist. They do exist, and I think I don't like them. <laughs> I think, oh no, it's a one person improv show. I don't like it. <laughs> and generally, I've been won over. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do that because that's not what I'm interested in mm-hmm. I think it's very clever and generally I do enjoy it when I see it I think I hate it and then I, then I go oh yeah but apart from this one I want this one I want this <laughs> one uh, but that's not what I'm interested in for myself I want to go on stage with somebody and create something more than we would have created separately I completely agree with that That's I, I love the brainstorming aspect because like when you get a group of people together it's like that whole like what we ended up with, I would not have come up with that by myself. Exactly, yeah. I yeah. love that too. What does a good improv scene look like to you? Like, what is good improv? Maybe the feeling you walk away with or what you see, like, even if you're, when you're on stage, probably more so, but just good improv. I like scenes that are emotionally real. I particularly like it when, if I've got an issue uh, in real life, if I can just chuck that onto the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always very satisfying. You'll see that tonight when Bryn and I do Dr. Tuprov. Nice. Um, you know, I slightly pretend it's made up. Generally, it's not made up at all. It's just exactly how I'm feeling. <laughs> um, but the two of us, we fold it into the Doctor Who universe. Uh-huh. And that's really satisfying. And sometimes I come away going, well, 
did we really solve that issue by <laughs> watching episodes of Doctor Who? Well, in a way, no, but in another way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it is therapy for me. Awesome. Uh, so it's connection and it's therapy. That's yeah. what keeps bringing me back to info. So then another question I have is, I, listened, I think it's the Chris Mead episode. I'm not quite sure, but I think it was. Chris Mead was awesome. Um, where he said that a lot of people come to, a lot of people in England, when they warm up for improv, they immediately start apologizing. Like, oh, my shoulder. Oh, that was, um, that was uh, Steve Rowe. Steve Rowe, okay. Yes, and I have a, yes, since he pointed that out, I am really, uh, yes, we're all tired. We're all ill. Let's, let's be joyous about the fact we've come together to improvise. I don't want you to lie to me, but I want you to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And I want you to be the least tired version of you, yourself that you can be. You can still be tired, but you, I want you to be excited that you're here. Right. Because this is a gift. We should not take this for granted. Yeah. Um, but do you think it stems from uh, like an insecurity of like, I'm telling you this in case the show goes bad. I told you ahead of time that a headache. So if the show goes bad, I already told you a headache. Or is it a politeness? It's like, uh, like in America, it's all about individuality. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wee, let me show you my Instagram account that's all selfies. You know, so it's like, I'm awesome. But where do you think that comes from? Because that's culturally, because Americans are like, yeah, everything's awesome. Um, I, yeah, it could be, could be politeness. It could be, yeah, it could be insecurity. I don't know. But okay. I, I, if I could change, uh, if, uh, if I could change one thing about improv at the moment, it would be that. Just be pleased to be in the room. Okay. That's what I always try and do. Because I'm always tired and I'm always feeling ill. And I don't have this mythical peak state right. that I think exists. Um, that when I hit that, it'll be amazing. I'm always tired. I'm always feeling ill to some extent or other. But I'm just trying to make sure that this is special time and I just really appreciate it. Awesome. It. Awesome. Okay. I know what your next question is going to be. Okay. Uh, what's, well, I'm going to ask anyway for those <laughs> that have not listened to before. Uh, What's, what's your signature, signature move? move? Okay, what's, signature what's your move? classic? Uh, Escobado, he's done it again. He's brought the house down. He saved the day. I just had that bit to give people more time to think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've listened to a bunch of podcasts, so I've thought, like, what is my signature move? You know, that's a fun game to play as well. If you're playing listening at home, pause the uh, thing now and uh, think of yours, and guess what David's might be. Yeah. Um, and so I've had time to think about it. Uh, I know when I was younger, I do a lot of space work, um, which I think is really interesting because all people talk to me like, you should teach a space work class because, at least in America, there's no classes on space work. They'll be like, oh, in, re, uh, interact with the environment, but there's no like real instruction on how to interact with the environment uh, realistically. Like people, okay, here's another thing in America is there's a school of thought of like, uh, you here's how you hold a gun. You hold a gun as if your fingers in the trigger and your thumbs around the gun. Oh. Not the cartoonish. You hold two fingers out and make a gun shape. UCB like. manual was yeah. very strict on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like people will like hammer that home, and I feel like going. I don't care. <laughs> yes. You know, if, if I get you holding the gun, I get it. You're holding the gun. I'll react to that. You know? Um, uh, but. But so there's no, and I think one of the reasons we have that is because there's no instruction on space work here. And a lot of it would be like you take mime or you take like clowning or something like that was what you would use to supplement your, your time in improv. Uh, but I, I've always done a lot of space work and I think a lot of it has to do with the second the scene starts, the first thing I do is imagine where we're at. Like the minute that you and I are on stage, even if I'm re reacting to you and reading to you, I'm thinking like, okay, are we like in a bank vault? Is there a bunch of money on the side? So one of my first things is like, where is this taking place? Um, because that allows me to, that, that informs my character a lot. 
because if we're in a bank vault, we're, we're in a very enclosed space and it could be really chilly and so I can be cold and I can be adding these little nuances, like maybe I'm rubbing, like right now you can't see, but I'm rubbing my arm and I'm touching my shoulders, that will inform my character and I'm not inventing everything, I'm discovering it. Now that might be like initially what's in my head and you and my partner, you Stuart, you might say, you know, oh this ice cream parlor is, and now I'm cold in an ice cream parlor, like I'm really quick to switch it as soon as you shift it, yeah. but one of the first things I do is what's my space look like and I'll be very specific in my mind. Because I've always been a very imaginative person. Like when I was a kid, uh, my parents really left me alone a lot because I would just like imagine stuff and draw. Like I've always had to like take care of myself. Um, that I'll imagine like, okay, well the vault door is only kind of open, so how, so I kind of look and the vault door is super heavy and it's really cold to the touch. Like I've imagined all these little details because as the scene's going on, it's very rare in real life, except for obviously this podcast. So two people just sit there and talk to each other across the way. Um, so you see a lot of scenes where two people meet and they're about two, you know, three feet apart, kind of. Uh, uh, what do you call it? You're kind of faced out towards yeah, the audience. So cheating. Yeah. Cheating out to the yeah, audience. Yeah. Um, and they just stand there and they're just talking heads. But that doesn't really happen in real life. In real life, you've entered my room and I'm folding my clothes or I'm vacuuming the floor and you're doing your own thing. You're eating an apple. Like, that's what happens in real life and that's how people are, are really interacting. So when you have that environment, my thought is the realism is, yes, we're conversing, but our, but we re- believe in our world just as much as David and Stuart believe in our other world. So, like... I believe that we're in this vault and it's cold and I walk, then I think like, why are we here? And even though we could be like the classic example is two people performing surgery, but talking about a sandwich that they just ate, you know, oh, yeah, we're yeah. performing surgery, but we're just talking about, oh, the sandwich was delicious and the meatballs about, um, that, that, that space work and that environment inform your character so much. So I think my signature move is a lot of space work and along with that space work like in addition is I do a lot of my own sound effects ah. so if I light a lightsaber <laughs> and I'm doing my light, or if I like cock a gun you know and I'm, I'm doing all my sound effects the classic example that when I was in college people used to always say is whenever I open a map I'd always open a map the same way and I'd make the noises of the map and I'd always unfold it and people would like make oh David's gonna unfold the map and, and, and I would get dinged for that I'd go to take classes and I want to say this was Second City where they say stop making your own sound effects because it's unrealistic. The audience sees you making sound effects. And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I think people like the sound effects. And I think if I do it, if I don't focus on it, if I'm not drawing attention to the fact that I'm making yeah, sound yeah, effects, yeah. that the audience goes, that's part of the world that they're in. You know, um, I, could, I guess to leave me off on a tangent, I think it's really good to take teachers all over the place, workshops. And during the, 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 when you're in their classroom, do everything they say. Yes. When you're out, only take the things that really help yeah, you out. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's uh i think we should everyone should be taking more classes um can i tell you one more thing before so i'm developing i'm sorry i won't take don't want to take up all your time up okay um so i'm developing this theory in improv and it's really just a theory at this point like there's not a lot of grounding it but i'm trying to develop it to be a little more specific so now it's a little vague but i think there is there's a class system in improv because and the reason I'm asking you is so you can tell me if it exists in <laughs> is in, in America, at least in my experience in Los Angeles, there's an elite class, there's a working class, and there's a poor class. Now, the elite class are the people that own theaters, that are getting paid to be teachers, that are in house teams, and blah, 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 blah. There's the elite class. Um, and then there's the working class. And they're the ones that are paying for classes. They're the ones that are in the middle of their journey. They're the ones that are, are excuse me, looking to get on a house team. Um, but the reason they're literally the working class... It's because by their dollars of taking these classes and paying for the shows and blah, 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 they're the ones keeping the company in business. Um, and then the, there's like the poor class. And the poor class, I would say, is more just like people just starting on their improv journey. Like, we, this is my first class I've never done before. Or 
and uh, people that may have some sort of uh, uh, challenge that doesn't allow them to really progress forward if it's like an emotional challenge or in LA, I don't know if you have this in England, but in LA we do have people that have like emotional challenges that take classes with you, like people that maybe Asperger's or mm. uh, there was a woman who was an older woman that just could not be touched, so she had like a proximity thing that made it very difficult because then there's not trust in the scene. And it's not that like, it makes it difficult. I don't have to touch any character in the scene, but I feel anxiety because I don't know if you're going to feel uncomfortable because you don't trust me right now. Um, so I have this, this concept of like, Alita was, like I was saying before, all these teachers I've taken, I've never seen them in another class I've taken at another school. And it could be they feel like, I've already taken all those classes. Mm -hmm. But they're new teachers all the time and improv is constantly changing. Yeah. And these the elite class would be the people that get hired to do workshops at, at festivals and that's and everyone wants to break into that because then you're successful and you're making money and everything but rarely do i see those teachers taking each other's workshops mm. or being on an improv team with someone from the lower levels to help them learn their craft on the way up and they'll say all the time go see bad improv because you learn from bad improv and i don't see them at a bad improv show right. or I say you know so so it, the rules don't apply to them in a certain sense do you see that sort of elitism or that sort of level like i said i'm still really vague with it right now yeah i don't think we're a big enough scene okay. to have that elite level. I don't think there are that many people earning money to live by through improv. Okay. I might be mistaken, but I don't know. I don't think there are that many. So I don't think we've developed into that those kind of structures because I don't think the scene's big enough yet. Okay. Which makes it an amazing time to be a part of it, though. Yes. Because there's so much genuine connection. There isn't that separation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like the golden era of improv in England, isn't yeah. it? Do you yeah. think it is? Well, everyone thinks their own era is the golden era. <laughs> so, yes. You're very right. You're totally right about that. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, I've just been thinking about that. That's it. That's really interesting. I, I love you so much. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. much for doing this. I feel like I was on a... Like, I love the London Improv Podcast. I'm so excited. You love the Improv London podcast. I'm sorry, the Improv London. Oh, so here's an interesting thing. If you ever search up improv in London, you're, the pod, this podcast is the first thing to come up across the board. Brilliant. Google, Facebook, anything. This is the first podcast. So you have that. That is that's, an amazing location to be in. That's why I called it this, because it describes perfectly what it's about. But also I was thinking, yeah, what sort of search terms could I like to appeal for? And Improv in London, yeah. Oh, that's really good news, though. It's good to hear that's Perfect. happening. Brilliant. Thank you for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. Thank you so much. Yay. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was brilliant. I love everybody. Bye. Bye. I made this. That's Improv. That's improv. <laughs>